The year is 1982. Argentina invades the Falkland Islands, prompting British Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher to send a fleet of 127 ships, including the cruise liner the QE2, to defend the small group of islands off the coast of South America that the Brits had claimed as their territory for nearly 150 years. The Vietnam Veterans Memorial was completed in Washington, D.C. to honor the 58,000 service members who were lost during the 20 years that Americans fought in that controversial war. A 24-year-old black man named Wayne Williams is found guilty and sentenced to life in prison for killing two men in Atlanta, Georgia, although authorities believe that he was also responsible for the deaths of at least two dozen more most of them black and under the age of 18, in the horrifying two-year killing streak that the media called the Atlanta child murders. And in that year of 1982, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama went to Charles Fuller's A Soldier's Play, a mystery about the murder of a black soldier on a southern military base that evolves into a searing meditation on how the toxicity of racism can poison even the very people who are being oppressed. My name is Jan Simpson. Welcome to All the Drama, a podcast about the plays and musicals that have won American theater's highest accolade, the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. When I began this podcast, I made the decision not to go through the plays in chronological order, but to jump around through the decades, choosing the plays as they jumped out at me. I wish A Soldier's Play and I had jumped at one another earlier, because Charles Fuller died just three months ago, and I would have loved to have had the chance to talk with him about his play, which was only the second one by a black playwright to win the Pulitzer. Fuller was born in Philadelphia on March 5, 1939, to Charles H. Fuller Sr., a printer, and Lillian Anderson Fuller, who sometimes took in foster kids. Young Charlie went to Philadelphia's famed Roman Catholic High School. He said he decided to become a writer when he found no books by black writers in the school's library. When he graduated, he went to nearby Villanova University, but dropped out after two years to join the Army, where he served from 1959 to 1962 in Japan and South Korea. When he returned home, he attended night classes at LaSalle University while working a day job as a housing inspector. During that time, Fuller also got swept up in the black arts movement. It was led by the playwright Amiri Baraka, who had recently changed his name from Leroy Jones. And Baraka and others were calling for new ways of expressing the culture and history of African Americans. In later years, Baraka would criticize Fuller's work for not being political enough. But in 1968, Fuller and some friends founded the Afro-American Arts Theater in Philadelphia, and that's where Fuller began writing plays. One of them, a drama about racial tensions between a group of mixed-race couples called The Village of Party, got produced at the MacArthur Theater in Princeton, New Jersey the next year. It didn't get good reviews. A local critic wrote, quote, What the evening proves is that the theater is not Fuller's bag. End quote. Well, critics don't always get it right. Fuller kept at it, 
He wrote plays that were produced by the Negro Ensemble Company, or NEC, and by Woody King's New Federal Theater. His first big hit came in 1976 with the Brownsville Raid. It was based on a real-life incident in 1906 in which black soldiers stationed in a Texas town were wrongfully accused of killing a white resident, causing an entire black regiment to be dishonorably discharged. An Army investigation in 1972 found those soldiers to be innocent. Five years after Brownsville, Filler won an Obie for Zoo Man and the Sign, a contemporary drama about a family trying to persuade neighbors who had witnessed the murder of their 12-year-old to put aside their fears and identify the killer. Then came a soldier's play. Fuller said it had been inspired by Herman Melville's Billy Budd. Set in 1797, Melville's novella told the tragic story of a charismatic young seaman, the veteran officer who resents him, and the rigid code of military justice that determined their fates. Fuller's version takes place on a segregated army base in Louisiana during World War II, and it opens with the murder of a black sergeant named Vernon Waters. Everyone assumes that local white bigots killed Waters, but the Army sends in a black captain named Richard Davenport to investigate, in part because it doesn't know what else to do with a black officer who has a law degree. As Davenport interviews the soldiers who knew Waters, he finds that the case is far more complicated than it seemed at first. Flashbacks show Waters' disdain for the men in his unit particularly for those darker-skinned or less sophisticated than he was, and how his treatment of those men, especially a country boy named C.J., affected the entire unit. The production was staged by the NEC's co-founder and artistic director, Douglas Turner Ward, and its cast included NEC regulars Adolph Caesar as Waters and Charles Brown as Devonport, and a group of young up-and-comers, who included Samuel L. Jackson and Denzel Washington as soldiers in the unit. The play won the New York Drama Critics Circle Award for Best American Play and the Outer Critics Circle Award for Best Off-Broadway Play. And, of course, it won the Pulitzer. Two of the Pulitzer judges were so impressed by a soldier's play that they refused to recommend any alternate choices to the Pulitzer board. But the third judge abstained, saying no plays that season were worthy of the prize, even though other contenders included A.R. Gurney's The Dining Room, David Henry Wong's The Dance and the Railroad, and Harvey Firestein's Torch Song Trilogy. The board sided with the first two judges and awarded the prize to A Soldier's Play. The show went on to run for 468 performances at Theater 4 on West 55th Street. A film version retitled A Soldier's Story, directed by Norman Jewison, with a cast that included Denzel Washington and Adolph Caesar, reprising the roles they'd created on stage, was released in 1984. It received three Oscar nominations, including one for Fuller's screenplay. But that was the year that Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus cleaned up at the Oscars, and A Soldier's Story walked away with no wins. 
A Soldier's Play has been revived three times here in New York, once for a short run back at Theater 4 in 1996, then in a 2005 production at Second Stage that featured James McDaniel as Waters, Tay Diggs as Davenport, and Anthony Mackey in the Denzel Washington role. And in 2020, the play finally made it to a Broadway stage and a Roundabout Theater Company production directed by Kenny Leon with David Allen Greer as Sergeant Waters and Blair Underwood as Captain Davenport. Fuller, then 80, was on hand to take a bow with the cast on opening night. That production, which closed when COVID shut down all theaters in 2020, won the Tony for Best Revival, and Greer, who had been a replacement in the original stage production, and then went on to appear in the film before taking on the pivotal role of Waters in the Broadway revival, took home the statue for best performance by an actor in a featured role in a play. A six-month national tour of that roundabout production with Norm Lewis and Eugene Lee, another member of that original 1981 cast, stepping into the roles of Davenport and Waters, is now making its way to ten cities across the country. Fuller wrote a few more plays after A Soldier's Play, but they had short runs, and like many playwrights before and after him, he turned to writing screenplays. He died on October 3rd. He was 83. One of my best friends, Sidney Baker, was the director of development for the NEC, and I spent a lot of time there back in the 80s, not just visiting her, but stuffing envelopes for fundraising campaigns, sometimes sitting in the lobby at Theater 4 and trying to sign up subscribers. So I got to see a lot of NEC plays, including the original productions of both Zoo Man and the Sign and a soldier's play, even though I never got the chance to meet Charles Fuller. But as I worked on this episode, I thought back on those days, and I reached out to Sydney, who later moved on to work at the Yale School of Drama and the La Jolla Playhouse, and along the way got married and became Sydney Simon, and to Leon Denmark, who served in a variety of managerial positions at the NEC during its heyday, including as its managing producer. And I asked both of them to talk with me about their memories of a soldier's play. They both said yes. They both also had a lot of really great things to say, particularly about the surprising effect that winning such an award as the Pulitzer can have on a nonprofit theater. So this episode may run a little longer than usual. Hi, Sid. Welcome to All the Drama. So glad to be here. So glad that you asked me to participate. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. And I'm going to start this off the way I start off just about all of these conversations by asking if you remember how you learned that the soldier's play, a soldier's play, had won the Pulitzer. I learned it actually from you. At that time, I forget what publication you were looking for, but I was at my desk at the NEC, you called, and in the big whisper said, this is going to be announced tomorrow, but I wanted to let you know in advance, a, a soldier's play has actually won the Pulitzer Prize. Well, I threw up my arms, and probably the phone, and I ran around my little office, and then I ran out into the bigger office, and I said to everybody who was there, all the rest of the staff, a soldier's play has won the Pulitzer Prize. And there was much, much rejoicing, much rejoicing, 
I don't think Douglas Turner Ward was actually in the office at that moment, but Leon was, and it was just, it was, it was just such an exciting moment for all of us. You know, in the not-for-profit world, most of the time, you're either begging for money or begging for supplies or begging for whatever, and to get something that profoundly moving out of you know, to us, nowhere, it was just a great, great moment. And then the next thing I did was call the donors. <laughs> this is stunning to me because I have to say, I don't remember that. And I have no idea where I would have gotten that information. That is so wild. So you you guys weren't expecting this at all. Uh, no, as a matter of fact, because the Pulitzer is not always awarded every year for theater, we never even thought about it. I mean, the show had won a number of awards and it had gotten a lot of really warm reviews. You know, this is in the days before email, so then you had to mimeograph or Xerox everything, stuff it in envelopes, <laughs> put stamps on it to get it out to the, to the board and the other people if you couldn't reach them by phone. But that day, Janice, I was at the office, I don't know how late, just calling everybody I could think of to say tomorrow in the paper, in the New York Times, you're going to see this announcement. And it is a wonderful, wonderful wow. thing. Do you have any thoughts about what made the judges give Charles Fuller the Pulitzer? As you said, they'd been sort of fickle about not giving the award some years. It also had some serious competition Agnes of God, Mass Appeal. I don't know if you remember those plays, The Dining Room. There was some serious competition. You know, I think it was kind of the totality of the work that had been presented before a soldier's uh, story uh, opened, a soldier's play. I'm, I'm having difficulty here. Um, but, you know, we had done Gus Edwards' Weep Not For Me, which was a wacky, gritty, comedy tragedy that I absolutely loved. We had done mm -hmm. Zoo Man and the Sign by Charles Fuller, and that had given the world Giancarlo Esposito, uh, among other actors. There was just kind of a shiny, uh, a shiny aura around the NEC in terms of those two productions and, and others leading up to a soldier's story. It was sort of like a recognition that the NEC was producing valuable drama. It kind of recognized not only that, in my opinion, not only that play, but the plays that had preceded it in that season. 1981, it was a hell of a year for us. And there were, as you say, strong, strong competitors. But it felt to me like it was a recognition of what the company had been trying to accomplish for so many years with so so few resources, so few seats. You know, we were at Theater 4 by that time, which was an expansion over being at St. Mark's Playhouse, which only had 149 seats. But at 299 seats, you're still not paying for the cost, the running cost or the production cost of the show. So this was an enormous boost and it, it helped fill those seats, even though those seats weren't paying for everything. It made for a much lighter load, you know, to be recognized in that way meant that 
the work the company as a whole was doing. You know, that was Doug's dream all along to have a real ensemble company that would kick in and do the work and 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 put these shows together. And as I look through um, the people who worked on it, like the the designers and the other people, it was just it was like a big family. And this was a big happy Thanksgiving dinner <laughs> for that family. Um, I think one of the things that really strikes people now when they look back at uh, that original production is the cast. Denzel Washington, Samuel L. Jackson, David Allen Greer, and even Peter Friedman, who is known in the New York theater Mm -hmm. community. Do you have any memories of uh, that cast? Oh, Brent Jennings, who was one of my favorite actors for years and played one of the smaller roles, was he was always in the office, always looking for the next job. Denzel Washington, on the other hand, would occasionally come to the office, mainly to pick up his check. And he was always very modest, very buttoned up, very quiet. He, uh, he just wasn't one of those people to... Um, hang out and spend a great deal of time. I do think that Doug's chief strength as a producer and as a director was his ability to find the right people for a lot of the roles that were played. Finding Larry Riley, an actor who could sing and perform as CJ, you know, this sort of not very bright Mm -hmm. Billy Budd type person, that is a brilliant thing, a brilliant thing. And so I would say that it was in the casting and that it was in Doug and and Leon's ability to write contracts that would actually enable them to to perform with us. I mean, Denzel only did that one show with us. He never did Adolf another one. Adolf Caesar was the oh. star and actually went and did the movie too. It almost right. seems as though Charles Fuller wrote the part for him it just so fit him uh perfectly oh yes uh adolf had been in a number of productions (laughs) and he was uh he was so charming he was charming he was bright he was angry about you know uh, and opportunities for black performers but he was extremely charming and he worked at the NEC almost in anything he was asked to do, but that show played to his strengths in ways. I mean, just from the, the, the casting of his color, he was a very, very fair-skinned man. He, his size, there was nothing tall or broad about Adolf. He was just a little, you know, twig of a man, but he stood so erect, and he could throw that voice from one end of that theater to another, and uh, just convince you that he had a reason to hate CJ. He could convince you. His performance was outstanding. He got a, a number of awards that there year. There was a party, and it was at a disco somewhere near Macy's. I don't remember Denzel Washington there. I don't remember Sam Jackson there. The one image I have in my mind is of this really just exuberantly happy Adolf Caesar. When Adolf was was happy, he just he shone. He just shone. It, it, it shone out. How of his face. did this 
win this award affect the company? In the emails we exchanged um, before we talked, you said that winning the Pulitzer was quite an emotional ride. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about how that was so. Hmm. I can tell you that, as I mentioned, um, we communicated to the board and to the donors and to the funders, you know, the NEA and uh, the Rockefeller Foundation, the Ford Foundation, all of the major funders who had kept the NEC alive through the years. And we had hoped that that kind of success would encourage donors and funders and you know, corporations and all the rest of them to give more money. But in fact, they felt the show's success seemed to be a reason to stay at formal levels or or even do less. No one ever seems to realize that virtually no not-for-profit theater earns more than 50% from ticket sales. And the moment you have something successful, there are people who dust off their hands and say, well, I'm done with that. Because they think, well, you got a big hit. What do you need me for? So a lot of our work was really focused on making people understand, trying to get people to understand that this was representative of the kind of work that could be done if we were continue, if we could continue to be funded at the level. It sounds we like needed. it was a, a sort of a tough road after the excitement uh, of winning the award, but there was that moment that somehow I played a part in, where you guys won this prize. And I want to thank you for talking with us uh, about it. You are so very welcome. I couldn't be prouder of having been there at that time. And now for my conversation with Leon. Hi, Leon. Welcome to All the Drama. Good to speak to you, Dan. I spoke earlier with our friend, uh, Sydney Baker, she was, and now Simon, and she told me about how the NEC got the news that A Soldier's Play had won the Pulitzer. But do you remember what your thoughts were when you got the news? Well, I was overjoyed, just very happy, uh, and ironically, uh, actually, after thinking, oh, that's great. The next thing came to my mind is, oh, gee, we should have submitted some other plays earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any thoughts about why the the jury and then the committee decided to give this play the award? What do you think it was that really caught their imagination? Oh, it it was a confirmation of uh, Charles Fuller's writing ability. This was just a culmination of a, a great dramatic mind. Uh, also, the acting was exceptional. It's the play that brought Denzel Washington to people's attention. Uh, it's, uh, it was the, the height of Adolf Caesar's acting career. Uh, Douglas Turner Ward was perfect as director for the play. And he, in addition to Doug's great direction and casting and the great acting and the great writing, to me, the secret to a soldier's play was it, it hit on a universal message uh, that everybody could relate to. Uh, and that's the secret of all great theater, uh, the universality of its message. And for a soldier's play, it was 
the depiction of self-hatred. Hmm. Um, it wasn't black or white. I mean, it turns out that so many American groups of people uh, have gone through that period of self-hatred. And, and in fact, my theory that black people's insistence on black is beautiful really kicked off a period in America that continues to this day of all the ethnic groups who up until then had wanted to submerge their ethnic culture into this thing called melting pot. But the Black is Beautiful movement in the 60s freed all the other ethnic groups to start to tout its own ethnic worthiness. You know, not only uh, Latino Americans, but Italian Americans, Greek Americans, uh, everybody all of a sudden became proud of their heritage. They may have been proud of their heritage prior to that, but they started to talk about it mm-hmm. out loud. To me, that's a result of the forcefulness uh, and the success of the Black is Beautiful movement. And, but in doing that, everybody in looking back, there was a period of self-hatred among all those groups, Black Americans, Jewish Americans, Italian Americans. And boy, a soldier's play hit that chord. I, I used to stand in the lobby of Theater 4 and listen to people talk about, well, you know, I had an uncle just like that talking about Sergeant Waters. My father was like that. God bless him. It, it struck such a universal chord, which was also uh, a clear indication to the rest of the theater world that the particulars of Black American life could be expressed in a way that sent off uh, a universal message to all people, to all people, not only Americans. I mean, there were productions of Soldier's Play in Japan and in Australia. So the, the particulars of Black American life put together in a skilled artistic way like Charlie Fuller could do could generate a universal message. And uh, once the Soldier's Play did that, There was no denying that anymore. Hmm. So it was all those things that came together. The play and the production checked off all the boxes for uh, maintaining a high standard of excellence for the Pulitzer. Do you have any specific memories of the production? As both you and Sid have noted, it had a stellar cast, and it was maybe uh, Doug Ward at his directing best. Doug was, uh, uh, for a certain kind of plays, like the Soldier's Play, and the prior year, like Zoom In and The Sign, he was a perfect director because Doug knew these worlds that these plays were talking about. And he knew these people that were in these plays. I remember with a soldier's play, Doug told me was the only play that he never changed a word because Doug himself was a playwright and he often, often edited the plays. But he said in a soldier's play, he didn't change one word. And uh, he knew the play so well, we rehearsed before the first preview for about a week and a half on that play. Most people rehearse four to six weeks. We rehearsed a week and a half. We started rehearsal on a Thursday. We did Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, off Monday. And then we rehearsed all through the next week. And then the following week, we actually did the first preview. Uh, and then two performances after that, 
we did actually the first official opening of the play. So, but that was possible, one, because, first of all, the writing was perfect, and one, Doug cast it perfectly. The show had a long run at Theater 4 on West 55th Street, but it didn't transfer to Broadway. Is that something you wanted to do? No, we we decided consciously not to move that play. Uh, We did it after discussing it with Charlie. And that was mostly because a couple of years prior, we had moved the play Home by Sam Art Williams to Broadway. I remember that. And uh, it was nominated for a Tony. Uh, the Children of a Left of God won. But we transferred to Broadway. It, had a, it was well-received by the critics. But, you know, it didn't do that well at the box office. Uh, but it ran for eight months. But when a play doesn't do well at the box office, you have to ask the theater to waive its royalties or even sometimes waive its rent. The theater owner will do that sometimes if everyone else waives their royalties. So for for most of that run, Sam Hart Williams didn't earn royalties. Wow. Now, it, yeah, it did put him in a spotlight. and He went on to have a great career out there in Hollywood. The NEC didn't get any royalty. No, nobody earned royalties on it. The actors got paid, uh, thank God. <laughs> so we decided, uh, and and that had happened, I think, to the NEC before with the River Niger, uh, with uh, First Breeze of Summer. So we decided, Charlie for one decided, no, I want royalties. <laughs> <laughs> so so we we left it in the Off Broadway house, uh, and it ran for fourteen months, and every week. Charlie Fuller received royalties. Uh, And leaving it there was actually, uh, it was to the chagrin of the Broadway producers, especially the Schubert's. The Schubert's were a big sponsor or supporter of the NEC. And they sort of expected us to move that play to Broadway. And we didn't. They continued to support us, but they didn't like the fact that we made that decision. But we made it so that Charles Fuller could receive royalty. Huh. Now, Fuller did a couple more plays for you guys, but then he seems to have stopped writing for the stage. Do you know why he stopped writing for the theater? Well, playwrights write to where they can get their work done. Charles, after A Soldier's Play, wrote a series called the We Series, which was about um, reconstruction. And we did, uh, I think it were three plays in that series. We did two of them. One was called Sally and one was called Prince. But after that, the NEC fell upon hard times and wasn't much of a producing entity. And um, Charles had nobody else, nowhere else to take his place. So Even know, after winning the Pulitzer? Hey, that's, that's a pattern that reverberates throughout American arts. You know, uh, quite often, Black artists who win the top prize don't always receive the benefits. These days, we're more likely to receive the benefits. But back then, it was the same old, same old, same old. You say the NEC fell on hard times. Can yeah. you sort of briefly say what happened? Because there was, there was a string of hits, of plays that got acclaim and attention, what happened? Well, the uh, NEC could never garner enough private 
philanthropic support. The NEC for most of its life was its major source of support was government, whether it's state government or federal government. It was birthed in the, the 60s, ironically, by a grant from the Ford Foundation, which was in fact a private source. But foundations never give money forever. They give they they like to start things or fix things, but but never forever. And the National Endowment for the Arts came in and supported the NEC. The New York State Council on the Arts supported the NEC. But during all that time, we were never, ever able to garner private support. And when you look at the financial history of not-for-profit theater in America, you will see that the basis of the financial stability is private support. Individuals, foundations, yes. Uh, and and uh, and corporations, and we got some of that, but we were never able to get enough to sustain us and actually to prosper. Why do you think, or how do you think, the theatrical landscape has changed? Because if you look at the last, I think, four Pulitzers, they've been won by black playwrights. Well, the major shift is that the white-run theaters are doing more Black theater. Mm -hmm. When the NEC started, hardly anybody was doing a Black theater. The public theater run by Joseph Pat was a notable exception. And even Manhattan Theater Club, there were smatterings of things that were were done. But nobody did it uh, all the time. As Doug used to say, the NEC was the only theater that woke up every day having to do Black theater. And the other theaters resisted the fact that they should do it. Let me get back to my point. So the the thing is, all the things that's happened since the 60s and 70s and 80s, and then now with Black Lives Matter and all of that, has made it obvious that white-run theaters need to do Black theater. Also, when we first started doing theater, white-run theaters used to say, oh, our audiences won't buy those tickets. They won't come to see that. So a soldier's play also in the tour of a soldier's play that lasted for years proved once and for all that black theater could be popular at the box office. And then Lloyd Richards was appointed the artistic director of the Yale Repertory Theater, and he found August Wilson. Lloyd's production of August Wilson's plays continued the tradition that NEC had started in about 79 of touring Black theater throughout the regional theater world and successfully touring it. So everybody in that period got a taste of how successful Black theater could be. And so the white one theaters took on the task of doing Black theater, having successfully put Black theater organizations out of operation. There are any number of Black theaters still around the country, but none of them as prominent as the NEC had become. None of them. Uh, Because, first of all, to become that prominent, you have to be in New York City or Chicago, maybe, or L.A. But none of them ever have reached that level of prominence. And that's because the American cultural community didn't want it. Okay? It's a different world for Black playwrights when the person who's going to read and choose their play is Black. 
And these days, that's very few and far between. But again, since they're, they've, they've gotten in the habit of being successful in the presentation of black theater, so if you write a certain kind of play in a certain kind of way, there are certain theaters in the country that will produce it. And I suppose part of the, the reason for that is uh, a soldier's play. So it not only was uh, a pioneer in, in winning uh, the Pulitzer, but also in just sort of changing the conversation about how successful black plays could be playing to general audiences. Absolutely. Absolutely. A, a, a soldier's play was the culmination of a lot of efforts, but the beginning of a whole new time for black theater in America. Hmm. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. I hope you'll come back next time and that you'll listen to all the other Broadway radio podcasts. And if you aren't already doing so, that you'll consider making a contribution to support our work, which you can do at patreon.com slash Broadway Radio.